ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಕಾರಣ ತಂ ನಮ್ಯಹಂ so in aparoksh anubhuti we have uh, completed the first 21st uh, first 21 verses and we are on the 22nd verse let's just recollect what we were doing is we are trying to understand how the self is not the body or to put it more directly how am i not the body the first central gross fact about myself which i don't i never even question is that i am this and if somebody asks what is this i will say this is i who are you i am this so the body is something that we identify ourselves with immediately without any reflection now advaita vedanta non dual vedanta asks us to reflect it asks us to challenge this fact it says that this fact is absolutely wrong you are not the body we have the feeling of being embodied but we are not the body the body is something different and we the self i am something different from the body and a series of arguments have been given um from 17th verse onwards atma vinishkalat the self is partless the body has parts that which is one and partless how do you say uh, identified with something that has parts the body has so many parts organs tissues cells and continuously changing the self is partless now you might ask how do you know that are we supposed to take it on faith take it upon reflection take a look at your own experience about yourself see i have parts hands and feet ah but that belongs to the body well i have parts i have memories and ideas and emotion that belongs to the mind as advaita drives us deeper into ourselves away from the body and the mind we find we have no parts we experience bodies and minds with parts but the self is not experienced as fractured even a person with multiple personality disorder all those personalities are in the mind the experiencing self quite apart from any advaita theory when you consider how we experience things we experience ourselves as a unitary experiencer experiencing many things in the body and mind only when we identify with ourselves with the mind and with the body do we feel we have we are composite we are we are you know it's as the saying goes we are legion we are full of different parts often in conflict with each other but these are different parts of the body and mind so how do you com- confuse the two kimagyanam matapparam what greater ignorance can there be to confuse the partless with the, with that which has parts the one with the many atmanyamaka chantar deha bahya niyamyaka these are the what we have already covered the atman the self is felt to be the controller and internal the body is felt to be external 
How do you mix up? How do you say that internal and external are one and the same thing? Kimagyanam matafparam. What greater ignorance can there be? Atma jnanamaya punya. The self is always experienced as sentient. Whatever we think about ourselves, one thing is common. We think about ourselves as sentient beings, as beings who are aware. Aware of good and bad, body and mind, God and world, that's later. But we are aware. Sentient beings. We are, we are conscious beings. We have a continuous first person internal experience which is what we call life. And that's the self. That's our experience of the self. And the body is made of flesh and blood and bones and all sorts of wet and nasty things. How do you say sentience and awareness and, and bones and cartilage and flesh and blood are the same thing? They can't be more different. And yet we say that what greater ignorance can there be? Atma prakashaka swacha. It is the clear light which illumines everything. Again in experience. And deha tamasuchyate. The body is, exper is experienced as an object. Body is often felt as resistance to our own being. And so it goes on. Now we come to verse number 22. Remember these are only apparently arguments which shows us the, legal, the, the logical inconsistency of holding these two to be one and the same, the self and the body. It's logically inconsistent to, to, given what we know of them, if we reflect upon them. If we do not reflect, it's very natural to hold them to be one, that I am the body. It's only when we challenge it. And Vedanta is nothing but challenging uh, this position. This position which we have not reflected upon Vedanta says this is the root of our suffering. This identification with the body. This is called Dehatma Buddhi. Dehatma Buddhi means Buddhi, um, knowledge, understanding. It goes deeper than that. The very feeling that I am the body. And this is the root of our suffering. And Vedanta says that this is based upon an error. These two are not the same. Now he's pointing out how they are not the same. We are supposed to look at this, think about it and say, yes, this is right. So will I feel myself separate, a ghostly essence orbiting above my body? Will I feel that? No. But we'll begin to see what, it, what is meant when I say, when Vedanta says we are not the body. We'll begin to see that. It's just not a set of intellectual arguments. Because the argument is about ourselves. As we understand something, that also becomes reality for us. The prince who was lost in the forest and brought up by a hunter, and when the many years later grew up thinking that he's a hunter's son in the forest, and the minister from the kingdom comes searching for the lost prince and finds him and says, you are a prince of this kingdom. Now, because the information was about him, it was not something theoretical. His whole idea about himself changed from I am the son of a hunter to, the, to I am a prince of this kingdom. All he required was to challenge the assumption that he is a hunter, hunter's son. All he required was that piece of information, that pointing out. This is what the book text is doing. It's pointing out. Let's see. 22nd verse. Atmanas tat prakashatvam 
Very interesting verse. The light of the Atman, meaning thereby consciousness, our awareness. What exactly is it? He says here, the illumination of objects is verily the light of the Atman. We'll go deeper into that. It's a magnificent statement. The illumination, the experience of objects is the light of our own self. And he says, this light is not a material light. It's not a light like the light of fire or light, light of electricity or even the light of the sun. It's not a material light. It's consciousness. Bhavati andhyam yato nishi. Now, because there is, uh, or like darkness at night, it's an example. I'll come to that later on at the end of explaining this verse. Um, the light is illumining this room. The light is shining upon everything in this room and everything is illumined. But, not without your eyes. Close your eyes just now. No light, no room, no people, no things. There are outside. We can see it, but you cannot. You cannot experience it. In your experience, it's not just the light which is illumining this, this room. Your eyes are experiencing, enable you to experience the light illumining this room. Your eyes are the light of that light. Your eyes are the light of that light. If light is something that illumines, something that reveals, something that removes darkness, then not only is that light a light, but metaphorically or even rhetorically, why rhetorically? Almost in a very literal sense. Your eyes are also light because it reveals that light. Close your eyes, even you can't see that light. But the eyes are not enough. The mind is the light of the eyes. If my mind is not connected to my eyes, connected in the sense I'm not paying attention to what I'm seeing. You know, we, we speak about a blank stare. You often get that in Vedanta classes, a blank stare. <laughs> what is this guy talking about? A blank stare. The mind may be thinking about something else. Sometimes your eyes are open, you're listening to some wonderful music. So you're actually not seeing what's in front of you. You're listening to some wonderful musical performance. And therefore, the mind has to pay attention to the information which is being supplied by the eyes. So the mind illumines what is being provided by the eyes. And so what is in the mind? The image taken from outside of this room through the eyes is recreated in the mind. And that's what we see. Modern science, physiology, psychology, they are all in agreement in this. We are not directly seeing this, the things of, of this uh, room. All that is going into our eyes is not that room. We'll be blind in a half a second if any of the smallest items in this room were actually to enter our eyes. All that is entering the eyes is light. Just light. That's what the eyes are designed to take in. 
and the eyes convert that into certain images and that is again converted into something entirely different from light and images. It's converted into electrical impulses through our uh, optic nerves which it takes it to the brain. Somehow, we have almost no idea what's happen what happens there. Modern science yet cannot explain. Somehow, this whole thing is recreated in the brain. And somehow, in our minds, we, uh, we do not experience seeing things in the brains. We are not experiencing neurons and blood flow and thing in the brain. No, no, not at all. We are experiencing our minds. And that's again a fact. It's not an argument. It's not a theory. That's what we are experiencing. In our minds, the entire world is appearing. What, what we see with our eyes is appearing in our minds. It's all that we see is in our minds right now. And there in our minds, consciousness illumines it. You might ask, why go one step further? Why don't you say that the mind itself experiences all these things? Well, the mind is a series of changes. You saw something outside the room, now you are sitting in the room, seeing this room, soon you will leave the room and see something else again. Different images, pictures are coming in the mind. What is constant to all of them? The same consciousness which witnessed the outside is now witnessing the inside, is watching the inside. It will go outside later on and see the outside world again. So there's one continuous consciousness. The vrittis of the mind, the, the, the thoughts in the mind, the perceptions which come ultimately to the mind, they all continuously change. So there's a constant consciousness which lights up the mind. All experiences take place in the mind. Think about it. No, they don't. I can experience this glass outside my mind. No, you don't. You're actually experiencing this glass of water in your mind right now. Aren't you? Aren't we all? And in our minds, consciousness is illumining this perception about the glass of water. I'm not denying that there may be a world outside with a real glass of water and real people outside. I am not advocating what is in philosophy called a subjective idealist position. I am not saying that. It, that may be true, may not be true. What I am saying right now is indisputable. All that we experience throughout our lives, we experience as recreations in our mind. Proof of that, shut your eyes, the world disappears for you. Go to sleep, again a distinct possibility in a Vedanta class, go to sleep, even your mind disappears for you. Even your mind disappears for you. Right. So, we are the light which illumines, which lights up all our experiences. Which experiences, not just experiences in the mind. Everything outside is taken into the mind and experienced in the mind with the light of consciousness. What is the light of consciousness then? It is that light which reveals the universe to us. Atmanastat prakasha, the light of the self, you the self, are that light which is continuously giving you a series of experiences. Padartha vabhasanam, illumination of objects. Illumination of objects translates as experience of objects. All that we have experienced in our lives, in fact, that's what we call life. A series of experiences. That's all. And all of those are nothing but objects, gross or subtle, 
all illumined by that consciousness, that light of the consciousness. I'm saying light of consciousness because the language, that's the language is used here, but light of consciousness is sort of redundant. You can call it light, you can call it consciousness. It does not mean a material light. So that's what we are. In the Upanishads it is said, by a very, very, very ancient Upanishad, Brihadaranyak Upanishad, by what light does a person go out in the daytime and conduct his business? Imagine, 5,000 years ago, conduct his business and return home. Answer is by the light of the sun. At night, when the sun has set, it's very poetic, when the sun sets and darkness descends upon the world, upon the face of earth, at, what, at night, how do people conduct their business? How do they interact? How do they do the things they want to do? By the light of the moon. When the sun has set and the moon has set, <clears throat> I'm translating directly from the Vedic Sanskrit. When the sun has set, when the moon has set, by what light do humans conduct their affairs? By the light of the fire is the answer. When the sun has set and the moon has set and the fire is doused, by what light do we know anything that people are present in this room, for example? Imagine, no lights, lights all go off here. How do I know that somebody is present here? He says, by the light of our voice, shabdas, sound. Are you here? Yes, Swami, I am here. That's all we will hear in the darkness. So that sound becomes, speech becomes, by the, by this, uh, by the light of speech. Speech becomes the light by which we know something. When speech is also false silent, the sun has set, the moon has set, the, light, the fire is doused, and speech falls silent. By what light do we know that we exist? This is all that he was driving towards right now. Imagine, complete darkness. You can't see anything, you can't hear anything, there's nobody speaking. You cannot say whether I exist in the room or not. You can't see me, you can't hear me. But do you need a light to say whether you exist or not? At that time, sitting alone in the darkness in one corner of this room, you have absolutely no doubt about one thing, that you exist. How? By what light do you know that? That is the light of the self, that is consciousness, that is awareness. Call it sentience, awareness, consciousness. Quite different from the mind. Quite different from the mind. Mind is thoughts, emotions, ideas. The presence of thoughts, emotions, ideas is revealed by the light which you are. The absence of thoughts, emotions, ideas is revealed by the light which you are. It is the light functioning through the body, mind and body, which reveals our waking world, what we are experiencing now. It's the same light when the, you've gone to sleep, forgotten that you are lying down on your bed. It is the same light which shines in the mind and illumines your dreams. And when all dreams cease, we sink into deep sleep, the silence of deep sleep. It is the same light which reveals the absence of things. The absence of the external world, the absence of dreams. Nothingness. That nothingness is revealed by the same light. The Buddhists have a beautiful name for it. They call it the clear light of the void. The clear light of the void. Nothing is there. Absolute void. And yet it is full of light. Deep space right now, well away from the earth, it looks black. It is full of light. Sunlight is streaming through space. 
Just that because nothing is there to reflect that sunlight, you don't see anything there. But you hold, put a satellite there or some spaceship there, it will shine in sunlight. In sunlight, It's there, full of light. In the same way, in deep sleep too, you, the light, are still there. You experience the absence of everything. That is, you experience as the darkness of deep sleep. Yat padartha vabhasanam. Your light, the proof of this, is the experience of objects. And he could, he could have easily added the experience of the absence of objects. The presence and absence of objects. Presence of objects, waking world. Gross objects. Presence of objects within us, dream world. Dream objects. Absence of objects, deep sleep. All of that is revealed to us because of the light which you or I am. And that light is not a material light. It's not Agnyadi Deeptivat. It's not a material light. It's not this electric light or like the starlight or any, any kind of radiation. No, it's not a material light. You say, I didn't think it was material light. We didn't think that, but we have some subtle idea. You know, it's very difficult to get rid of the idea that it's some kind of light. Maybe we can catch it by some particle accelerator, particles of consciousness. You cannot. It's not a material thing. It is the illuminator of all material things, gross or subtle. Now, why is it not a material thing? Now, here they have given an uh, interesting argument. It's uh, what I would call a cute argument. And we, it's something that they would think about hundreds of years ago. We normally don't think in these terms. I'll present the argument before you. It's, it's rather, it's interesting. And it's a bit funny also. It says, the light of consciousness is not a material light like fire. It's not a material light like fire. Why not? Because a material light like fire, what does it do? It removes darkness. So wherever you take the light, darkness will go away. You take the light, darkness will go away. That's the function of material light. Any kind of material light, it removes darkness. Whereas, consciousness is not a material light. If you go into a dark room, say, I'm very conscious in the dark room, it will not become illumined to me suddenly. Consciousness is a light which reveals material light also and it reveals darkness also. That the room is full of light. How do you know? Because you're conscious. And lights go off. Everything is dark. How do you know? Because you're conscious. So, the argument is very simple. It's, it's at once child, childlike, not childish. It's childlike, simple. That's why I said it's a cute argument. Material light like fire removes darkness. Consciousness is not a light like that. Because it doesn't remove darkness. What does it do? What good is a light that doesn't remove darkness? I have a powerful torch which I bought at CVS or something like that, you know. And what does it do? Nothing. You can switch it on, it's still, everything's still dark. That wouldn't be much good. But consciousness is a very special kind of light. It reveals everything, whatever is revealed by this light, this room, it will be revealed by consciousness. And if nothing is revealed, there's no light, nothing, absolute darkness, that darkness is also revealed by consciousness. Consciousness re reveals the presence of material light and the absence of material light. So consciousness is not like a material light. Consciousness is the light of light. The Katopanishad says, Tameva bhantam anubhati sarvam, tasya bhasa sarvam idam vibhati. 
that shining, everything else shines. By its light, everything is lit up. Every day we sing in this, uh, in the evening, in, in the Vespers here, we sing to God, Thou art the light of lights, Jyoti Rajoti. Thou art the light of lights, Jyoti Rajoti. So that is consciousness. And what they are saying here is, this consciousness, that shining, everything else shines. What is that? That's you. That's me. That's our real nature. You are the light which shining, everything else shines. You will say, what else shines? Your life shines. Before your very eyes, the, your mind's eye, your life is going by from childhood till today and in future also. Everything that you have experienced, are experiencing and will experience shines in the light that you are. The things that you experience come and go. The light does not come and go. The things that you experience are good or bad, worldly or spiritual or religious. That light is not good or bad. It's not worldly or religious. It is the spirit itself. That, that's what Advaita Vedanta says. And it's something that we are here right, we, we are, we have it right now. It's here right now. It's always been there and always will be there. If we get it today, good for us. If we don't get it, our loss, but that, that light remains the same. So, now look at the verse, Atmanastat Prakashatvam, the light of, the illumining capacity of the self, or the light of the self, is simply the illumination of the world, the revelation of this universe. It sounds very profound. Revelation of the universe. What is this revelation of the universe? I'm sorry, I'm not as advanced as you, Swami. I haven't had that experience. It's whatever experience you have had till now and whatever you will have later on. Whether you experience this world or experience the next world or whatever. All the experience, the universe is being revealed to you by you, the light. And that is the light of the self or the self which is light. Na agnyadi deeptivad. It's not a fire, it's not a light like fire. Deepti bhavati andhyam yato nishi. So, here the example is given. As far as fire is concerned, there is a place where it is illumined and there is a place where it's dark. As far as this light is concerned, it illumines this room. Outside it's dark. You can see for yourself it's dark. But the interesting thing is, notice this, the beauty of this example. Look in this room, your consciousness experiences the light. Look outside this room right now, your consciousness experiences the darkness. But this light, if you take it out there, the darkness will, will be removed. Wherever this light goes, darkness is removed. And wherever it is not, there will be darkness. But both this light and the absence of this light, the darkness, are revealed by you, the consciousness. So your consciousness is not a light like this. It's much better. This light depends on your consciousness to be experienced. Now, let's go to the next verse, 23rd verse. And it goes without saying, our bodies are also revealed by the light that we are. Just like the universe, the body is also revealed. I am not the body. I am the light in which the body is revealed and experienced. 23rd verse. Deho ham 
ದೇಹೋಹಂಯಂ ಮೂಢೋ ಧೃತ್ವಾತಿಷ್ಠತ್ಯಹೋ ಜನ ಧೃತ್ವಾತಿಷ್ಠತ್ಯಹೋ ಜನ ಮಮಾಯಿತ್ಯಪಿ ಜ್ಞಾತ್ಮಾಯಿತ್ಯಪಿ ಘಟದೃಷ್ಟಿಂಗ್ಲೂಡಿಂಗ್ ದಟ್ series of verses which says what ignorance is this what foolishness is this to identify the consciousness the self within with the physical body so he's concluding that here um i have a feeling that i am embodied in this body and we say this is my body this is my body now we don't realize what a strange statement we are making sometimes we say this is my body and sometimes we say this is this is, i am i am this or this is me but we never use this language for anything else in the world i never say this is my glass and i am the glass how strange it would be how silly how crazy it would be that's my car in the parking lot and i am the car that's my dog and i am the dog how ridiculous it will be and we we keep saying that sometimes we say it's my body and but sometimes we say i me i am 150 pounds sometimes we say my body weighs 150 pounds we use it interchangeably but how can something that belongs to me be me he says ghatadrashtaiva the person who sees a part and says mama i am this is mine this part is mine he never says i am a pot he doesn't say that and not only do we say that i am the body but we spend our whole lives in taking care of the body it's like we have this particular particular old and sort of favorite t-shirt and we say what's the aim of your life it's to make my t-shirt happy the goal of my life is to take care of the t-shirt and to make it happy well a t-shirt at least won't do much harm it's pretty innocent but the body if you give it that that kind of um, authority over you is going to make you miserable if we say i am this body and the goal of my life whether i say it or not i don't put it out in so many words is to take care of the body and it's if i look at my life if i see what i'm doing day after day week after week month after month i take care of the body i feed the body keep it healthy keep it beautiful keep and everything is arranged for the body a comfortable house and and uh, uh, air condition in the extreme heat or cold and so on everything is arranged for the comfort of the body it's like taking care of your favorite t-shirt it's a terrible tyranny the t-shirt at least won't won't be a hitler you know t- controlling every aspect of your life but the body the moment you give so much importance to the body the body takes over what kind of boss are you if all the all of them they they who work for you they keep telling you what to do and you have no right to do anything what kind of a president or a king is it if if the king or the president has to listen to everybody around and and they tell him to do what what has to be done and nobody listens to what he wants to say so very very strange kind of king or president you would say that's that's weird i pity the poor fellow but that's what we all are 
the body and the sense organs, they tell us to do what, what, what they want, want us to do. And we obey. The tongue says, I must taste that. Like, okay, let me go and eat that. The eye says, I must go and watch that movie. Let me go and watch that movie. The body says, I need to go and lie down in a beach in Fiji. Let me buy a plane ticket and take the body and fulfill its wishes. What about me? I have completely forgotten that I have some existence apart from this body-mind system. That I exist apart from the car I drive. I have forgotten that. And my whole life is devoted to the car. That's how ridiculous it is. I am the body. Deho aham iti ayam mudha. The fool, he says, Shankaracharya, he doesn't spare words. The fool, iti dhritva. He lives his life holding on to this. Tishtati dhritva. He holds on to this body. That I am this body. And also doesn't see the strangeness in saying, it's my body. I am this body, it's my body. Interchangeably, all the time. The clue is right there that it belongs to me. It's something that belongs to me. Something that I inhabit, something that I have inhabited, something that I preceded. The body was not there, I existed before the body. The body will die, I will exist after the body also. We give importance to the body. We think the body is something tremendously important. And therefore we are afraid of disease and old age and death. The truth is we are not the body. We are something far, far greater and better than the body. Compared to that, Swami Vivekananda would say with a touch of pathos, he would say, if only you knew yourself as you truly are. If you did that, if you knew yourself as the light shining in which all your life shines, you know, that, that consciousness, then all the problems of life would be solved, at least for you, immediately, without any effort at all. Now let us see. Somebody gave a beautiful example. And it's, I found the example on the internet. Oh, on, somebody commented on one of the lectures, one of the, these classes, and gave a beautiful example. And it's a very appropriate example. He says that you go out to purchase the what, iPhone 7. That's everybody's purchasing it in the world now, everybody who's somebody. So, uh, and you come out joyfully with the packet. Now it's extremely valuable and you're very happy about it because it has the iPhone 7 inside the packet. And when, because of that thing inside the packet, the packet becomes valuable. No matter how important or beautiful the packet is, the moment you take it out of the, of the packaging, then that thing remains valuable. This thing is not valuable anymore because all the value for the packaging comes from that phone inside the packet. I thought that's a pretty appropriate example for the iPhone age. <laughs> so what are we to do? Uh, iPhone 8 or 7? iPhone. iPhone. <laughs> iPhone people, yes. Uh, no, I mean, anything like that. So the value of the package comes from what is inside it. Once you remove, once you identify that I am the consciousness, the packaging, the packaging for this life, this body, becomes unimportant. It will be there for some time. But the consciousness in itself can exist 
without did exist without this body will exist without this body in fact right now also is existing without the body we just think that we are tied to this body now what are we to do the next verse is very beautiful if all this is ignorance then what is knowledge what is knowledge that's uh, set out so powerfully in the 24th verse brahmaivaham samashanta brahmaivaham samashanta satchidananda lakshana satchidananda lakshana naham deho hyasadrupo naham deho hyasadrupo jnanam ityuchyate budhehi jnanam ityuchyate budhehi the wise say what is knowledge our question is if all this is ignorance then what is knowledge the wise say knowledge is knowledge of the one sri ramakrishna is to say in, in in the gospel we find aker gyan gyan aneker gyan or gyan the knowledge of the one is knowledge the knowledge of the many is ignorance which one not the number not the numeral one the one means that one consciousness which you are to realize yourself as that that is knowledge not to realize ourselves as that and to see the many and identify ourselves with a part of the many say this body and and a few thoughts and ideas and say this is me and everything else is apart from me there are some nice things which i will chase throughout my life there are some nasty things which i'll try my best to avoid and there are many things i'll be indifferent about and these sets are not mutually exclusive they keep changing and that is life i'm sorry i put it in a very unglamorous way so now if you know swami virajananda ji says in one place that um, the entire universe is presented before me either i am all of it or i am none of it both are gyana knowledge that i am none of this it is an appearance in my consciousness or i am all of this because it appears but ignorance is a strange thing which says that i am only a part of it this much and the rest is not me and now the game of life starts subject and object remember even after realizing this truth that i am all of it or i am none of it life will still go on you need not be afraid your car will still be there in the parking lot you can go out and drive your car back to your home all everything will work perfectly it's not that everything will disappear in a flash of light or you will somehow become one with your car or something but everything will work perfectly but you will have a sense of oneness with the entire universe everything you will realize is me in one sense or floats in the consciousness that i am and you will not be per- attached to any one particular part of it as this is me only and this is important i have to protect this and take care of this and promote this by all means this body and this mind no what will this body and mind do in that case will it be unemployed no it will go on doing what it has been doing but much better than it did earlier in a much more relaxed way in a much better ethical it will do it everything to the best pos- possible means uh, what it should do why do we not do what we should do the only reason is ignorance because we attach ourselves to this little body and mind and it uh, prevents us from leading 
good, ethical, noble lives. It's only when we realize ourselves to be something much vaster than this body and mind, then we can let this body and mind do, the instruments do what they are meant to do. So what am I, what is this knowledge? Knowledge of the one. I am this light which we talked about till now. Apart from the body, the same arguments apply to the body, the same arguments apply to the mind. I am not the body, I am not the mind. I am the light in which the body and mind and the universe shine. And this light is not limited by space. In fact, space is experienced in this light. You see, we tend to think we are limited, tiny little beings limited in space. So, Swami, my consciousness has a very limited range. I am just aware of this room. I may think about a few other things outside the room. That's all. It is this vast universe and vast space outside my awareness, outside my thoughts also. That's because we have already tied ourselves to this little body. Consciousness channeled through this body gives us a sense of presence in the body. Those who are interested in philosophy, you might have read about, it's called the BIV problem, brains in a vat problem. Um, it's a mind experiment, a thought experiment. They say, imagine a very advanced science team which takes your brain out of your body, how gruesome that might be, and then puts it in a vat with all chemicals and whatever is necessary to keep the brain alive, and then through a very sophisticated electronic system hooks you up with another body. So the body is somewhere else, you are a brain here with some transmission devices, you are hooked up there, but you will experience yourself as in that body. You will not experience yourself as a brain in a vat, because all sense organs are there. So the sensations will be there in that body. You will have a sense of being located there. So that's a very interesting experiment, thought experiment, and nobody's actually done it, thank God. But. Um, I, in fact, heard of something incredible. A person who had a severe accident, I was in North Dakota, and they were telling me a story about a person who had a severe accident, and the skull was badly fractured and everything, and they actually removed the brain. I don't know how they can do that, maybe outside, the, and then repaired the skull and everything, and then put it back. So you can take the brain, I don't know if they actually took the brain out, put it in a freezer, I don't know if it's possible. Anyhow, whatever. The point is, Consciousness, because of our sense organs, because of our sense organs, because of the mind functioning through this body, we feel we are present in this body. The individual consciousness, Swami Vivekananda said, it's like a circle which has its um, diameter, nowhere. I mean, it, it's infinite, but it's center in this body. So it seems to be present in this body. It is present in the body, but it's present everywhere. So this unlimited consciousness, all experience of space is in consciousness. I'm saying something very radical. We think I am consciousness experiencing space. Well, you have never experienced space apart from consciousness. This is consciousness and this is space, never. You've always experienced space in consciousness. All time, before and now and after, is experienced in consciousness. It's not that time exists and we become conscious of time. I'm saying some very radical things and that's what Advaita is saying. 
That pure consciousness is that in which the experience of time arises, in consciousness. It's not that consciousness is something which goes out and experiences a pre-existing time. No. And I'm not being dogmatic about it. Think about it. Not only have we never experienced anything like that, because we cannot, by definition, experience anything outside consciousness. Not only that, it's logically impossible. It's theoretically, logically impossible. So, consciousness, time is experienced in consciousness. Space is experienced in consciousness. And every entity, physical entities like planets and stars and atoms and superstrings or whatnot, subtle entities or abstract entities like numbers and poems and stories, all of that, all entities, subtle and gross, are experienced in consciousness. That, now follow this carefully, that which, in which consciousness is, uh, in which space is experienced, consciousness, that in which space is experienced, it cannot be limited by space. If space is experienced in consciousness, you cannot say, this is an area of space where there is consciousness, there is another area of space where there is no consciousness. You cannot say that. By definition, if consciousness, if space is experienced in consciousness, space cannot limit consciousness. If time is experienced in consciousness, time cannot limit consciousness. This is a time period in which there was, I was conscious, this is another time period in which I was not conscious. No, you are aware of experiencing things in this time period, you are aware of not experiencing things in this time period. These time periods and your experiences are all in your awareness. Again, I am repeating facts. So this consciousness which is always present, never not here, always present, is not limited by space. That which is not limited by space is omnipresent. It's not limited by time. That which is not limited by time is eternal. It is not limited by any entity in the universe. That which is not limited by any entity in the universe is infinite. Limitation is fi finitude. That which is not limited is infinite. What I mean by not lim being limited by any entity is something like this. Each of the benches, the pews you are sitting in, they are different from each other. Each bench is different. They are individual benches. But from the point of view of the wood which constitutes those benches, none of those benches, if I use a strange language, none of those benches limit the wood because they cannot exist without the wood. wood. The wood pervades all these benches throughout. In that sense, there is no entity that limits consciousness because it is in consciousness that all entities are experienced. Okay. Now this one consciousness, not limited by time, eternal, not limited by space, omnipresent, not limited by any entity in the universe. Limited by entity would mean there is an entity which is not consciousness or is outside consciousness. There is no such entity. There cannot be. Then this consciousness becomes infinite. Infinite Omnipresent, eternal consciousness. Another name for that is Brahman. So he says, Brahmaivaham. Not dogmatic. The one consciousness if which we are beginning to get an idea of, the very name for that in, in Upanishads is Brahman. I am Brahman. This is knowledge. What Sri Ramakrishna says, the knowledge of the one. The knowledge of the one is, I am that Brahman. 
I am Brahman, this knowledge is knowledge, true knowledge. This is what is called knowledge by the wise. Samaha, everywhere, at all times, in all situations, exactly the same. This is a beautiful sentiment that we should never be in conflict with God in our lives. What does that mean? Everything that happens, happens by the will of God. I'm saying a practical thing now. Everything that happens in our lives, in the lives of everybody else, happens by the will of God. Now, not being in conflict with the will of God means not resisting it. If there is something bad, I know the question that comes up. So if something evil happens, are we not going to resist it? Of course, something evil or something bad happens, that also happens by the will of God and the will of God is that you are there to do something about it. So you'll do something about it. But don't deny that. That also happened by the will of God. Something good is happening by the will of God. Something mixed or indifferent is happening, that's also by the will of God. I, I heard the story about a lady of, uh, of uh, noble descent, uh, uh, part of the aristocracy in, in, in England, who went to Bernard Shaw and said, George, I accept the universe. And he replied immediately, by God, madam, you'd better she, as if she's coming to some great conclusion that I accept the universe. <laughs> you better accept the universe. <laughs> Samaha, the same Brahman which you are, is, is equally same everywhere in every, every aspect, in every, every dimension of our lives. Whether things are going well, you are the same Brahman. Things are not going well, you're the same Brahman. The body is young and energetic and vigorous, you are the same unchanging Brahman. Body is getting old and diseased and going to its final end in the same Brahman. The body is dead, being taken to a crematorium or being buried or something. You are the same Brahman. Same unchanging, con infinite consciousness. Samaha everywhere. And therefore, the, the wise, the enlightened persons, we see in the Bhagavad Gita again and again, one quality of the wise is they have samadrishti. This is very rather badly translated as same-sightedness. Sounds like near-sightedness or far-sightedness or something, an ocular defect. But same-sightedness means having seeing God in everything. Otherwise, how can you put up with humiliation and with praise? How can you how can you treat success and failure with equal serenity? Not by willpower, not by brute force. You know that I'm going to be. I'm going to keep calm, no matter what happens. Not that way. By seeing that it is the same Brahman. Good things happen, bad things happen. Samaha, absolute serenity, absolute calmness. Don't, don't enlightened persons get upset? You read the lives of enlightened persons, they do get upset. But the recovery period is much faster. The moment they look within, look outside, it's the same. One reality. They can use their anger or irritation as, as tools for the benefit of others. There's a story about reminiscence of Premananda Maharaj. One young monk joined the order in Belurmat. A young person joined the order, wanted to become a monk. And Premananda Ji, Swami Premananda Baburam Maharaj, disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, received him with so much affection and joy and, and love and was speaking to him so sweetly. And there was another Brahmachari, a young uh, novice, and Premanandji was scolding him. So this person saw that 
Premanandji is speaking to me, Swami Premananda is speaking to me with such sweetness, such love. And he, would, he turned around and looked at that, that person and his face became red, red with anger and started shouting at him, scolding him uh, in the strongest terms. And this person thought, in Bengali he's written, so the monk has got anger as well. So the monk does get angry. The moment he thought this, Premanji turned around towards him and smiled and started speaking sweetly to him again. Samaham. <laughs> uh, doesn't mean that you'll, you will become like a stone sculpture. You will not get sad or not get angry. You will become sad. You, you, the feelings of sadness or anger or irritation or exultation, they will come and go. And you will recognize them for what they are. Upsurges in the mind, shining in the light that we are. Samaha, Shantaha. Eternally peaceful. Your very name is peace. You are not peaceful. Your very name is peace. The name of the self, this light. The name, another name for this self is Shantam. In the Mandukya Upanishad, 7th verse, 7th mantra of the Mandukya Upanishad. Shantam Shivam Advaitam. You, your name is peace. Not that you are peaceful. The mind may sometimes be peaceful, hopefully. Sometimes it may be restless. You are peace itself. In you, eternal peace, the mind is sometimes peaceful, sometimes restless. You are not bothered. The enlightened soul sings, I am an ocean of peace. The description is, Shantaya Tejase. This peaceful radiance, that's what you are. The clear light of the void. In this peaceful radiance, in this ocean of peace, the body and mind is like a little boat, which sometimes rides high on the waves, sometimes crashes into towering waves and so on. In this ocean of consciousness, the body and mind has its ups and downs. And what is your attitude? I am not impatient. I watch the movements of this body and mind, the life which flows past in my light with, with no impatience. Shantaha. Satchidananda Lakshanaha. I am existence, infinite existence, infinite consciousness, infinite bliss. This is knowledge. Jnana mityutyate budhei. The wise consider this to be knowledge. I knew this monk who has passed away in Belurmat, who said that what is in that almira, in, in, the, in that cupboard, I don't know what the things are, the individual items, but what they are all in reality I know. Everything in the universe, what it is in reality I know. He, many people didn't get it, what he was saying. When we read it, he was openly admitting that he is, an, is a knower of Brahman. You will know everything to be Existence, consciousness, bliss, which you are. And the converse, Naham Deho Hasadrupa. Then this body and mind in themselves, they are not real. Is that bench real in itself without the wood? No. Is the wave real in itself without the water? No. Is the ornament real in itself without the gold? No. Without the existence, consciousness, bliss, which you are, the body and mind have no existence at all. They appear in you. Without you, they do not exist. So, this false body, I am not this false body. 
I am not this appearance called a body. This is knowledge. What we have to do? We have to affirm one. I am existence, consciousness, bliss, infinite. Brahman, Brahmaivaham. I am equal serenity. Samaha, Shantaha. Everywhere I am serene. I am same in all circumstances. Samaha, Shantaha. And what do we have to disaffirm? Disown. Naham deha. I am not this body. Again and again and again. Because we have programmed ourselves into thinking we are this body. Whenever the occasion arises, I am not this body. It appears, it's an instrument, it has its role to play. It will change, it has been changing all my life. I can see that it's been changing. And it will continue changing. And one day it will drop off because that's the very nature of the body. It will go. The thing we have to do is not try to hold on to any of these things which arise in consciousness because they will go away. Not try to prevent anything that is arising in consciousness because it will come anyway. The moment we try to prevent anything which arises in consciousness, prevent in the sense that I don't want this as existence, consciousness, bliss, I am afraid of this. That's, that's contradictory. You cannot be afraid of anything in this universe when you are existence, consciousness, bliss. That does not mean if there is an illness in the body, I will not treat it. Always use common sense. But deep inside, be serene. Okay, there is an illness. This is the medicine for it. Very good. Finished. Why have I got the illness? Why me? This is terrible. I have lost my belief in God. Why? Because I have a rash. I'm exaggerating. But that's what happens. Because I had such and such nasty experience, I have stopped believing in God. So many people have said that. That, that leads to a deep existential crisis within. That should not happen if I am existence consciousness place. So, neither resisting what is coming, nor holding on to what is going away. Samaha shantaha. Jnana mityutyate budhi. This is knowledge according to the wise. Now we'll take one or two questions. We have time. Yes, there's a question there. Just wait for the microphone. When you say like existence is consciousness is yes. equal to experience, right? Yes. Uh, you are in a way taking the stand of subjective idealism that you mentioned, no? Aren't you? So, how is this different from subjective idealism? If you take subjective idealism in the sense of Bishop Berkeley, for example, um, or the much more ancient Buddhist Vijnanavadi who came 1500 years before the good bishop and stated his position much better than he could have stated it himself. But, the thing is, it's not that the world is imagined in the mind. The subjective idealist says that there is no external reality what is happening is happening within the subject in our own minds. I think, uh, who was it who criticized it as a brainless philosophy? Because we can see the skull, here is a skull, but we, can't, we don't experience the brain, so there is no brain. Unless you experience it, it's not there. So, uh, and there is a famous story of, I think, Samuel Johnson and Bishop Berkeley. There is no external world apart from my mind. And Johnson is, is, is reputed to have said, I refuted thus, sir, and he kicked a rock. 
Of course, Berkeley could have just as well said, said that you have, if you kick a rock in your dream, uh, that's also within your own mind. It's not that by just kicking a rock, you prove that there is a real rock outside. But Advaita Vedanta does not say this. In fact, Advaita Vedanta is pretty compatible with the realist position. Advaita Vedanta does not say, you, the individual, are imagining your world there. Advaita Vedanta rather says, consciousness is apart from the body, apart from the mind. In the, in the consciousness, mind appears and body appears and the universe appears. Now, if you reduce the universe to the mind itself, it becomes subjective idealism. But it goes further than that. The mind is also something that appears in consciousness. Now, if you take a realist point of view, that there is an external world and you as a knowing subject experience a world apart from you, Advaita is perfectly compatible with that. Because Advaita says the ground of both you, the subject, and the object, which you both consider to be independent realities, both are dependent on consciousness. Swami Vivekananda says in one place, the one alone exists. It appears as nature, soul. Song of the Sannyasin. So Advaita Vedanta, you can fit it. In fact, some books have been written to show that Advaita Vedanta is compatible with a realist point of view. And also with the subjective idealist point of view. There are Advaita Vedantins who are subjective idealists. Uh, the school of Drishti Shrishti Vada is somewhat is not exactly subjective idealism again because they are not saying everything is imagined in the mind but it is close. Prakasha, uh, Prakashananda Saraswati his book is Advaita Siddhanta Muktavali that takes a position somewhat like the idealist. One more question? Yes, there is a question there. So I am just trying to understand this bliss or consciousness perspective and I am trying to compare two examples, newly born infant who has never learned about body or mind, no perception, and person who is in a deep sleep or in a coma, yes. who has been medically disconnected from body and mind. Yes. Are they at the same level in terms of bliss or consciousness because they have been detached from both this? All right. Newborn infant. Newborn infant has no perception. That's absolutely wrong. It's full of perceptions. And the newborn infant is aware. You are saying the newborn infant has not learned anything, has not gone to school and does not, may not think in the way we think. But definitely it has so many, the, the child has so many perceptions. This perception of hunger, of thirst. Why born? Even before birth, the child has perceptions. Hunger and thirst and light and heat and cold. And it will let you know the perceptions by a terrible scream, you know. When the infant cries, it's expressing what it's perceiving. So the infant has perceptions. And all those perceptions are rising in the consciousness, which is, uh, which is the ground of that infant's body and mind. What is underdeveloped is the body. And what is not fully functional is the mind. But consciousness is just the same. And in the case of deep sleep or coma, consciousness is just aware of blankness. It's not that there is no consciousness. Yeah. And that consciousness, pure consciousness in itself is bliss. In fact, yovai bhuma tatsukam, the Upanishad says, that which is infinite is bliss itself. So when you have infinite, unrestricted, unrestricted existence and consciousness, that itself will be experienced as bliss. That itself is bliss. Okay, last question. Um, 
the, uh, the early quantum physicists, Heisenberg, Bohr, they were fascinated with the Vedanta, I believe. And yes. Because the Vedanta philosophy correlated with what the classical interpretation of the observer effect. Observation uh, causes uh, uh, the cell, the wave to collapse, the, the Copenhagen interpretation. Uh, I don't see much difference, frankly. Um, I've been told that. And uh, recently I was in the University of North Dakota speaking to a group of uh, mathematicians, physicists, and also people from the humanities, from people from Department of Religion, Philosophy. And uh, they have a very nice seminar called Religion, Science, and Lunch. So you're allowed to bring your lunch there. And you can eat, and you can talk about religion and science. So this subject, this question came up for discussion. And I think they discuss it again and again also. Now, I don't know enough physics, let alone quantum mechanics, to comment on that. But yes, I've been told that again and again, and that uh, the observer has now firmly been bought into uh, fundamental physics. You cannot do fundamental physics by ignoring the consciousness of the observer, or the observer himself. But what it precisely means, unless I study a little more, I cannot say in relation to Advaita Vedanta. But uh, this does strike me as very, very interesting and significant that the three greatest discoveries of um, science in the 20th century are Einstein's special theory of relativity, are Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and Gödel's um, incompleteness theorem. Now, if you look at science in, up to the 19th century and ask them to predict what would you think would be the characteristics of science in the 20th and 21st century, they would have without any doubt said it would be complete, it would be absolute, they wouldn't say it would be relative, it would all be absolute, it would be not incomplete but complete and it would be, um, you know, uh, consistent. Uh, it, it, it would be, so, so they were in a mechanistic way of thinking and they would expect science to be a completed thing by 20th century, they, they would have predicted something like that. Not uncertainty, they would have predicted certainty. Not incompleteness, they would have predicted completeness. Not relativity, they would have predicted absoluteness. But what did, what did science end up with? Relativity, incompleteness, and uncertainty. These are the exact terms used for Maya. In Advaita Vedanta, thousands of years ago, the terms used for Maya are these that it is relative, that it is um, that uncertainty and incompleteness. These are all symptoms or, or characteristics of Maya. Now, I won't take this any further because I have friends who are scientists or monks who are scientists who will um, catch me if I make any um, statement that is not cautious and careful. We are very senior Swami. I can even name the Swami, Swami Sparnanandaji, who is the Vice President of our order, who taught us Vriyadharnaka Upanishad, and he warned us against making rash generalizations about science and Vedanta. He said that at the most you can say there are very interesting parallels in modern physics, cosmology, and um, 
your Vedantic idea of what's going on in the universe. Thank you very much. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamas